Chapter 7 of What is Industrial Democracy by Norman Thomas. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by The Progressing America Project. What is Industrial Democracy? Chapter 7 The Contribution of Employers to Industrial Democracy. Employers faced with the rising demands of organized labor have adopted one of two methods. They have fought labor ruthlessly with an elaborate system of industrial espionage, and often with armed guards, or they have sought to placate labor with concessions, welfare work, and sometimes a small share of representation in factory management. Footnote. See The Labor Spy by Sidney Howard, Republic Publishing Company. End footnote. These two methods of coercion and cajolery are by no means exclusive, and many great corporations employ them both. When they or their representatives talk of their contributions to industrial democracy, however, they forget their systems of espionage, which are destructive to every decent human relationship, and refer only to employee representation. It would not be fair to say that all or even most employers, in their various forms of welfare work, including profit-sharing, are moving solely by a desire to forestall unionism. It is true that had there never been unionism, these concessions would have been about as scarce as hen's teeth. But individual employers, not unfriendly to unions, have made concessions from their own sense of justice. And it is probable that even those who are trying to forestall unionism may also have a certain sense of pity or justice, or love of playing the gracious Lord, which is satisfied by better homes for working men, social clubs, etc. Profit-sharing Most of this mere welfare work has no relation to our present discussion. That is true of profit-sharing, unless profit-sharing is accompanied by some degree of control for the workers. Good, bad, or mixed in its effects, Profit-sharing certainly does not put the democratic motive of service in place of profit, nor of itself does it greatly widen the basis of control. Worker and Consumer Ownership Many corporations, instead of, or in addition to, profit-sharing, make a special effort to sell their securities on the one hand to their workers, and on the other to their customers. Footnote. Such worker ownership is necessarily less effective than workers' ownership such as exists through our own banks or unions, to which we have previously referred. End footnote. The latter plan is a device much favored by public utility companies. It is splendid propaganda for these companies, which boast of the number of their stockholders as proof of public control. It may or may not be good business for the purchasers, who are told that as stockholders they gain in dividends more than they pay out as consumers. In no sense does this plan lead to industrial democracy or to true social ownership. Profit is still king, and the insiders are still in control. Footnote. These insiders need not own a majority of stock. They may represent primarily great banks, or in some cases they may be associated with the management group. End footnote. They can be trusted not to sell enough voting stock to lose their power. Much of the special stock sold to workers does not carry voting rights. 
anyone who knows anything of the habits of stockholders and the real nature of control knows how extremely improbable it is that workers and consumers, even if they owned a majority of the voting stock, could unite to put in their own directors. The work of organizing such a scheme would be stupendous, and meanwhile there would be a dozen ways for an active directorate to scotch the scheme. The upstart worker owners could be fired, and the consumer owners won over to the director's camp by easy devices. Perhaps the easiest way would be to play off the interests of consumers in a possible price-reducing or dividend-raising policy against the interests of the workers in higher wages. All these schemes contemplate no change in the notion of power by virtue of ownership and on the basis of the amount owned. And that ownership has the same legal rights if it vests in absentees who do not know one end of the machine from the other, but who, through their representatives, hire and fire the brains and hands that make their profits. Some of these schemes for selling stock to the employees are a danger rather than a blessing to them. Occasionally, the investments offered are distinctly of inferior grade. Even when they are not, the worker is a fool to put all his eggs in one basket. His rich employer scatters his investments. Yet he persuades the worker to invest everything in the company that employs him. In bad times in that industry, not only does the worker lose by wage cuts or unemployment, but by loss of dividends. Footnote. See on this whole subject the exceedingly illuminating remarks of Messrs. Soleil, Seligman, and Richburg in the Journal of the Academy of Political Science in the City of New York, reporting the proceedings of the semi-annual meeting of the Academy on Popular Ownership of Property, March 9, 1925. Employee Representation Employee representation at its most cautious worst does mean the entering wedge of the notion that the workers ought to be consulted by reason of being workers. For a variety of reasons, practical and sentimental, that notion found favor during the war in the Western industrial nations. What began under stress of war necessity has continued in time of peace. In spite of some setbacks and failures, the number of employees represented in some form of works council in the United States has, according to the National Industrial Conference Board, grown from 391,400 in 1919 to 1,177,037 in 1924. In the latter year there were 814 works councils. These represent 212 separate systems of employee representation. A number of these systems cover many separate business organizations, as in the case of the Graphic Arts Industrial Federation, while many of the large industrial organizations have plants scattered throughout the country, in each of which separate councils exist. Footnote. See the report of the Conference Board on Works Council for 1924. End footnote. Types of Works Councils Unfortunately, no one as yet has given a satisfactory analysis of the different types of works councils. An analysis of the different types of works councils. The most flamboyant and for a while the best advertised scheme was the Leach Plan of Industrial Democracy. It proposed the organization of a factory on the analogy of the United States government. The rank-and-file workers or their chosen delegates to be the House of Representatives 
the foreman to be the Senate, the president and the higher executives to constitute the cabinet. How misleading was the analogy is evident from the fact that the president could hire or fire the representatives and senators out of hand. Since the patriotic emotionalism of war days, the leech plan has made little headway. The tabulation of the National Industrial Conference Board lists only 27 industrial democracy schemes as against 148 committee plans and 37 employee associations. As a matter of fact, the form of organization of works councils is less important for the purposes of our discussion than the degree of control given to the workers and the relation of the works councils to labor unions. Speaking generally, the great mass of works councils do not appear to have much, if any, function or power, beyond furnishing a convenient means for the settlement of grievances and informal discussion of problems of production between the men and management. Some of the schemes, like that of the Denison Manufacturing Company, specifically provide that the employees through their representative shall have access to the books of the company, so that they may be informed on business conditions. In the Mittenmen and Management Plan of the Philadelphia Rapid Transit Company, and in some other schemes, works councils become the means not only of settling ordinary grievances, but of collective bargaining on behalf of the employees. When this power is not backed by wider union affiliations, it may be questioned how much of a protection it is to the worker. The logic of employee representation and partnership between labor and capital as preached by its advocates would assume that the workers, as such, should have some representation on the board of directors. This logic has not been carried out. A worker sits on the directorate of the Philadelphia Rapid Transit Company, but he sits by virtue of the fact that he represents the men in their capacity as stockholders, and he was elected because of an alliance between Mr. Mitten and the men, as against certain banking interests with which Mr. Mitten, as chief executive of the system, had quarreled. This alliance which has been developed in Philadelphia may conceivably be used against the public, as well as against the banking interests. The Philadelphia Inquirer editorially charges under the date of March 25, 1925, that Mr. Mitten, having capitalized the goodwill of the workers by relatively high wages and the goodwill of the public by good service, first managed to increase fares by 20%, part of which went for paying 8% interest on a 6% stock, and now is seeking to get a perpetuation of franchises on terms disadvantageous to the public. Mr. James Myers, in his book, Representative Government in Industry, says that only five concerns actually allow the workers to elect a representative to the board of directors. Footnote. These are Filene's Department Store, Boston, Duchess Bleachery, Incorporated, Wappingers Falls, New York, Rockland Finishing Company, Garnerville, New York, Procter & Gamble, Cincinnati, Ohio, and the American Cast Iron Pipe Company, Birmingham, Alabama. End footnote. Columbia Conserve Company. The most complete control by workers over the operation of their plant exists in the case of the Columbia Conserve Company, a relatively small concern in Indianapolis, Indiana. This concern is actually managed by the council. Membership in this council is open to any employee 
who will attend eight consecutive meetings of the governing body. In 1923, only about 20% of the employees had thus qualified as voting members. The scheme has been an undoubted success. Mr. William Powers Hapgood, one of the family that started and still owns the business, to whose personality much of the success of the plan may be attributed, summed it up by saying, Not only are the efficiency and the spirit of the employees very much improved, but the management gets far more pleasure from its work. Footnote. Survey Graphic, 1922. The High Adventure of a Cannery. This plan operates in a non-unionized industry. End footnote. Wappingers Falls. The Duchess Bleachery at Wappingers Falls has for some years successfully carried out a partnership plan initiated by Harold A. Hatch, one of the largest stockholders and a director. This plan has recently been described in the widely quoted report of the Russell Sage Foundation on sharing management with the workers and also in Mr. Myers's book, to which we have previously referred. The workers have representation on all important bodies, including the board of directors, which are concerned with the management of the industry. Their own board of operatives not only handles the usual factory grievances, but has done competent work in improving and managing company houses and inaugurating an educational and recreational program for the leisure time of the people of the village. Under this plan, the workers share profits with the stockholders. In practically all successful Works Council's plans, there are provisions for bonuses for increased production, collective insurance, or some sort of profit sharing. But the plan at Wappingers Falls is unusually comprehensive. The workers first receive market wages, which in the textile industry are admittedly very low. The stockholders then get 6% on their stock, and two sinking funds are set aside. The remaining profits are divided between stockholders and workers on the basis of a capitalization of the salaries or wages of the employees. There seems to be no doubt as to the general success of this plan. The management is not unfriendly to unions and gets along amicably with the only union represented in the industry. But because the industry in general is not well unionized, Wappingers Falls has made no contribution to the problem of the relation of works councils to unions. Neither has the plan of itself been able to solve the problem of low wages. This is a problem of the industry as a whole and not of one plant. Finally, according to the Russell Sage report, not even the representation the workers have in management makes them feel like proprietors. They know that ultimate power rests with the owners of stock. Golden Rule Nash There is a popular impression that Mr. Arthur Nash has taken the workers in his Cincinnati clothing factory into partnership, very much on the same scale as the Columbia Conserve Company and the Duchess Bleachery. Such is not the fact. Mr. Nash's occasional mass meetings with his employees do not provide adequate machinery for management. The undoubted improvements affected under his much-advertised Golden Rule policy, at best only tend to approximate standards set by the union in the clothing industry. The management of his factory had never satisfactorily cleared itself of the charge of discriminating against union members. The Reverend William P. Spofford, Secretary of the Church League for Industrial Democracy, 
after two days' work in the Nash plant and much study of its methods, called its industrial democracy bunk. Relations to Unions Not long ago I interviewed the head of a company, which figures prominently in Mr. Leach's lyrical praise of industrial democracy, in his once widely known book Man to Man. This particular employer had fought a strike on the part of his House of Representatives. He had won the strike and still kept some form of employee representation. Yes, he believed in industrial democracy. He conceded that some of its failures might be due to the faults of management. His heart yearned for friendly relations with his workers, but never, never, never must they join unions. His love of industrial democracy was a feeble flame besides his devouring rage against agitators, and he was typical of his class. The Pennsylvania Railroad furnishes the most conspicuous illustration of a scheme of employee representation deliberately intended as a substitute for labor unionism. Under the provisions of the federal law, the railroad had to have some kind of collective dealing with its employees. In the case of the strongly organized brotherhoods of engineers, firemen, conductors, and trainmen, it made a virtue of necessity and dealt with the unions. In the case of other employees, notably the shopcrafts and the telegraphers, it defied the unions and flouted the specific direction of the railway labor board that it deal with them. It was strong enough to win as against the striking shopmen. Its workers have accepted the company union plan to the extent of not striking against it, although test votes have shown the emphatic preference of the workers for their own unions. A committee appointed by the Research Department of the Federal Council of Churches issued a moderate report which plainly shows the failure of the Pennsylvania plan as an approach to industrial democracy. It concluded, the chief inferences from the investigation may be summarized briefly as follows. First, the employees of the Pennsylvania Railroad are generally able to earn good wages as measured by the wages obtaining elsewhere, and this is one main reason why men like to work for the road. Second, there is widespread dissatisfaction over piecework, especially in roundhouses and where the work is heavy. Third, the committeemen under the company plan are in general loyal employees and appear to be hearty supporters of the plan. Fourth, the plan had not, at the time when these observations were made, thoroughly won the confidence of the employees as a method of adjusting individual grievances, and the large majority of those interviewed were either indifferent or unfavorable to it. Fifth, the employees do not regard the plan as affording them any real economic power for the purpose of dealing collectively with the company. On the other hand, many of them are wholly uninterested in regular unionism. Sixth, it does not appear under these circumstances that the plan has yet brought about any marked increase of cooperation on the part of the employees. The definite anti-union bias of the Pennsylvania system is anything but unique. Mr. Walter Gordon Merritt, who has been an able advocate of employee representation, frankly urges it in the interests of factory as against class solidarity. He is equally opposed to the craft solidarity of trade unionism. While he might not outlaw unions altogether, he would relegate them to a place of no significance. 
It is one of the amusing inconsistencies of our American employers that banded together in their own associations, closely connected with other employers by interlocking directorates, able to hire the most expensive attorneys and experts. They nevertheless have the face to protest that they are willing to deal with their own workers, but only object when those workers choose outsiders, that is, union officials, to represent them. The Rockefeller Plan the best study of the inevitable weakness of works councils as contrasted with unions in obtaining increased wages and shorter hours is to be found in the Russell Sage study of industrial representation in the Colorado Fuel and Iron Company. This plan was initiated by John D. Rockefeller, Jr., after the terrible Ludlow massacre which followed a bitterly contested strike in the mines of the Colorado Fuel and Iron Company. Whatever may have been Mr. Rockefeller's intentions, the working out of his plan has been anti-union. It has not prevented strikes. It has had no effect in fixing wages, which instead have followed the fortunes of war, in the struggle between the organized miners and the coal operators. Investigators for the Russell Sage Inquiry say of the miners, They regard themselves as miners in the bituminous coal industry, and although they are not ungrateful for the new policy of the Colorado Fuel and Iron Company and its tangible manifestations in good housing, they are ever alert to the call of their national organizations to give a good show of strength in the organization throughout the country. Every time they respond in this way to a strike call, they demonstrate their sense of dependence upon the union to protect them by uniting miners together in the industry. They realize that they need the protection of representatives outside the company which employs them, because they have discovered that men employed in the company are impotent to protect themselves or others. The fear of losing a job prevents a man from opposing a company which gives and can take away his job. This analysis is true not only of the coal industry, but of the railroads, the packing industry, and other vital services. The American Federation of Labor Criticisms of Employee Representation These observations by the Russell Sage investigators go far to bear out the hostility of the American Federation of Labor toward employee representation as commonly practiced. The 1919 convention of the AFL indicted works councils under such heads as these. 1. Unfair elections and representations. 2 no democratic organization permitted. 3. Intimidation of committee men. 4. Prohibition of expert assistance to the men. 5. Lack of real power in company union. 6. Diversion of aim from the true objects of collective bargaining, such as wages, hours, and conditions to secondary matters, like safety-first movements and benefit schemes. In an editorial in the American Federationist, following the publication of the Russell Sage Report, Mr. Gomper's successor, President Green, indicated that these objections might not apply when, as in the case of the Baltimore and Ohio plan, the union is itself party to the plan, and the shop committees are connected with the union. Indeed, President Green's professed faith in the possibility of cooperation between capital and labor hardly justifies an irreconcilable objection to all forms of employee representation. 
so long as the American Federation of Labor leaders do not accept the syndicalist or communist notion of absolute conflict between the workers and their employers, it is possible that works councils might find a place in their scheme of things, provided that the union is recognized. The Sage Foundation report urges such a reconciliation. It points out that the trade union movement has been too little concerned in the relations between a company and its own employees in their common task of producing goods cheaply and efficiently for the benefit of the public. The very growth of employee representation, especially in factory industries where the trade unions are weak, would seem to suggest that at least to a limited extent, works councils meet some need which is felt by the workers. Employee Representation in Other Lands Whether the American employers who now advocate works councils would continue their advocacy if the employee committees were organically connected with the unions, as in the Baltimore and Ohio plan, is doubtful. Nevertheless, such organic connection is the accepted rule abroad in industrial nations like England and Germany. As is well known, the Whitley councils in England assume the existence of both employers' associations and labor unions, and the Whitley plan added to works councils a corresponding scheme of joint conferences between employers and employees in the industry as a whole. Footnote. As this goes to press, brief dispatches from England report the formation of an advisory council in the Manchester textile industry to serve the industry in various ways, including the control of prices. End footnote. Both employers and employees are represented through their own organizations. This notion has been even more carefully worked out, at least on paper, in Germany. Not only does one find works councils in German factories and councils in particular industries, but also a national economic council, at present provisional only, consisting of one-third each employers, workers, and persons of independent professions, included in this class are representatives of consumers' organizations. This National Economic Council is supposed to advise the Reichstag on social and economic legislation. According to Clemens Norpel, who writes in the International Trades Union Review, October to December 1924, these larger economic councils have not been of much benefit. In social questions, consumers generally range themselves with the employers against the workers, and in economic questions, the employers and the workers of the branch of industry in question often combine against the consumers. Of the works councils in individual factories, Herr Norpel has more good to say, but he is careful to insist that they are only useful to the workers insofar as they are connected with labor unions and backed up by labor unions. Quote, trade unions alone can be the basis of the labor movement, end quote. The chief function of the works councillors in Germany, according to this writer, is that they serve in the factories as the recognized news agents and executives of the union, and the indispensable advisors of their fellow workers. Moreover, the works councillors can obtain practical economic knowledge which they can impart to their unions and their party thus helping to render unions and party better fitted to cope with their great task. Herman Feiner of the London School of Economics finds far more to recommend than Herr Norpel in both the theory and practice of the National Economic Council. It is, he thinks, 
an expert advising body of real use in aiding the cabinet and Reichstag to minimize the faults of purely political legislation. Footnote, Finer, Representative Government and a Parliament of Industry, Allen, Unwin, and Company, is a valuable and careful study of a most interesting experiment. End footnote. Unfortunately, the study ends with the year 1922. German experience with the National Economic Council is less significant for Americans than it might be, on the one hand, because certain traditions and forms of organization in Germany were more favorable to such an experiment than anything we have, while on the other, the terms of the Versailles Treaty, the occupation of the Ruhr, and now the Dawes Plan, place dramatic limits on independent social or economic action in Germany. Whoever is right on this point, there is sufficient evidence that employee representation in England and Germany, even when connected with the workers' own labor unions, has not brought about industrial democracy. Advantages and Disadvantages of Employee Representation To the uncompromising communist or syndicalist, these schemes, like the Baltimore and Ohio plan in America, tend to dull the edge of the class conflict and delay the coming of the revolution. They are, therefore, worse than plans which are palpably devices of the employing class. Even if one does not believe that the workers' own relations with management and their progress toward industrial democracy can be managed simply in terms of unmitigated class conflict, one must admit that employee representation under our present capitalist system cannot go very far. It cannot alter production for profit. It is obliged to accept the unsocial and undemocratic consequences of our present system of profit, rent, and interest. It tacitly acknowledges the rights of absentee owners to a dominant, or at least an equal share in the control of economic processes, to which they contribute nothing save, at most, a certain amount of money capital. In other words, the deep gulf between capitalism and real industrial democracy cannot be bridged by works councils. On the other hand, employee representation, when it is not meant as a substitute for labor trade unionism, may have advantages for the workers that go deeper than a mere smoothing out of some of their temporary grievances. The success of works councils is an answer to the assertion that the manual worker is incapable of taking responsible and efficient part in the management of his own industry. If ever the workers are to take over control from absentee owners, the training some of them will have had through works councils in problems of production and management will be of real value. Finally, there is a possibility that works councils by bringing together workers of many crafts in one factory may tend to break down the craft barriers which now hinder efficient cooperative action by labor. A writer in the Chicago Tribune, May 14, 1923, goes so far as to suggest that those who advocate works councils instead of trade unions may live to rue the day. He fears that company unions will evolve into fighting industrial unions harder to deal with than the narrow craft unions. At present, his fears would seem to be enormously exaggerated, but it is by no means improbable that workers in a factory, drawn together by representation in a works council, may somewhat abate their craft rivalries and jealousies. End of chapter 7